Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to Articulating, a bi-weekly podcast where we center and continue to cultivate the stories of Black and Brown people negotiating independent school culture and where they go from here. My name is Gina Parker Collins, mom of two independent school scholars and founder of Resources in Independent School Education, better known as RISE. And I am coming to you from somewhere in my home in New York. Hey, and my name is Sam Osborne. I'm an independent school alum, RISE volunteer, and creative. I was previously a New York City fundraiser living in Brooklyn, and I'm now pursuing an MBA at the Wharton Business School. We'll talk about the challenges, celebrate the wins, and introduce you to some people that you really need to know about. Follow Articulating on Instagram at artic period ulating, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. She's um, a mom. She's also an administrator. She's a thought leader. And she's just a fun person to interview. I mean, like, she's so real, but um, in a very interesting and unique and important leadership role that I think many families don't even think about. I know what you mean, Gina. And she's also cutting, it's almost the, the level of cool she is. I can never amount to, and I don't know if you noticed, but talking to her, I was, I was kind of stumbling on my words. I don't know. I just wanted her to be my friend. Jan Abernathy is the chief communications officer at the Browning School. Thank you so much for uh, not only being our keynote discussion uh, at October 17th's uh, Rise Fall Boutique Recruitment event, uh, our 12th one. And I'm really excited about, thank you, thank you. I'm really excited about what you will articulate to our attendees, you and I in conversation together about belonging. Wow, it's such a cozy word. But I, I look forward to our discussion um, with you as the chief communications officer at the Browning School to break down that word for us. What does it really mean? And you who leads in communicating the mission of the school, the culture of the school uh, with parents and, and trustees and alum. I'm, I'm, I'm sure if no one else, if no one else can answer this, you can in how do schools communicate and activate belonging, right? And what does it really all mean? So I just want to get a little tease now about your thoughts around that topic, um, but don't, don't spill all the beans or put, you know, give all the tea because we're going to talk about that. But I will say it's, it, it, it's, first of all, it's delightful to be here. It's delightful to be talking um, with the two of you. And I'm very much looking um, forward to the, the, the boutique, your recruitment event. I can't wait. Um, I think it's really interesting the way that independent schools have turned, taken a turn towards belonging and actually articulating that and actually saying that that is, one of their visions going forward for DEI work, because I think it's so important. And it's always been an aspect of independent schools, but the interesting part was it was about belonging to an exclusive club, right? So our schools are just so sure you could belong because you met certain criteria that often involved where you were from, who your people were, what your race was. 
that was how you belong. That was, and that was sort of the price of entry. And so it, to the extent that some of our schools have not completely necessarily dealt with that lineage, I think that's the extent to which they have issues um, around really creating an atmosphere of belonging, because it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. It's yet another thing to have that in your policies and to start talking about who is really going to be able to have some power in your institution. So that's my, my short form, not wanting to give away too much. No, definitely. And it's so funny, you know, just thinking about, yes, there has been an evolution in the conversation about belonging. I remember for as long as I can remember, uh, there was the parent or guardian language. And I feel like that was the most, you know, you know, recognizing that there's a diversity of family style, but, um, I hadn't heard that language apply to any other sort of identifiers. And now, you know, visiting these schools, hearing from these different institutions, the, the jargon has just really blown up as far as the language that all members of the community are adopting. So it, it's a really exciting time. It's also been really crazy, um, Jan, just seeing your um, overlapping. It, I, I think it's crazy to see how you sort of overlap with this conversation uh, on the New York level, locally, and now nationally um, via the POCC conference. Congratulations. Oh, yes. thank you very much. That's Ms. Abernathy, Mrs. Abernathy. We see you. <laughs> yes, we yes. We're going to be hopefully offering some, some self-care tips for uh, folks in advancement who, um, oh. you know, Black folks in advancement who have had a, a hard time these past couple of years, right? Because it hasn't been easy watching our institutions really get hit with some negativity around um, diversity efforts. And, and, you know, what does that mean? For, because for a lot of us on the business side, on the advancement side, we may be the only one, we may be one of two or something like that. And I think that we need a space to sort of come together and talk about, you know, what that feels like. Well, let's talk about that, um, that term advancement, uh, certainly not just in the lexicon of independent schools, but in the business world, right? You know, and, and our schools are essentially a business that, that, has good, that has a great product that they want to sell. So in your role as head of uh, communications, can you share with the audience who might not know all of the stakeholder positions within an independent school business, uh, what does advancement mean? For those who so might not know. So advancement might be what you would consider um, also to be sort of external relations. So it's basically the, the, the folks who um, are not on the educational side dealing with the, the students, but are dealing with the adults. That's always sort of how I look at it. And so then admissions would typically not be part of that, right? Because you are still dealing with children, even though you're dealing with children and adults. But in advancement, who are we dealing with? We're dealing usually with just the parents. We're dealing with alums, we're dealing with friends of the school, we're dealing with funders, right? And, and what we are trying to do is really create um, messaging, obviously, firstly, and primarily around the mission of the school, the great work that the school is doing. And we're trying to drive people to some kind of action. You know, we're either trying to retain those families in the school. We're trying to make sure that families are engaged in annual giving, um, capital giving, if that's a capacity that they have. So we are very much the um, 
sort of public relations, external relations engine of any good, and you know, any good school has a good advancement team because that's what we need to do. We're the power behind what the educators are able to do because we're providing the funding, we're providing, we're shining the light on the great work that they're doing and we're providing kind of the branding and the imaging for a school. Does that help? That's helpful. I think about, um, I'm familiar with that term collateral. Um, Would you say that the items you're producing, what kind of collateral is that? Um, What do you own? Sure, exactly. So right, in in communications, we essentially own almost all of the outward facing um, material in the school. There's some things that are on the advancement development side, such as an annual report or solicitation letters, that type of thing that we don't own. But everything else from the newsletter, the website, we have a digital magazine, we have a printed magazine, we have a view book, or not a view book, but rather a a smaller, not one of those big view books, a smaller view book, um, admission materials, uh, all of that kind of stuff are all all things that typically a communications department does and we do here. All of the things that just make prospective parents kind of swoon and say, wow, you know what? This, exactly. this is Video, this, this, you know, this, everything that's all of this is speaking right. to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The glasses. Yeah. The external, but also I, I'm, I'm certain there are families that already exist at the school that are looking for themselves in a lot oh, of ab- Yes, abso- <laughs> yes, absolutely. Where's so, my son? <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, then, or, you know what, I just want to add this too. I just want to jump into the, to the flip side of that coin. There are some who don't want that, right? You know, check with me first before you use my likeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, obviously we have protocols in place. All schools do have protocols in place where you can say, hey, you know, I do not want my student to be, you know, used in marketing materials, right? Because that's essentially what we're asking their permission for. It's not permission just to take the photograph, which usually people kind of really don't have a problem with. You're taking the photograph for, for demonstration purposes because faculty is going to look at it, even because kids are going to look at it. Where people may have an issue is you're going to use it to market, right, your school. And so people have the right, of course, to say whether or not they want their child's image or their child's work, right? Because we show art, we show dance, we show, you know, whatever. Um, They have a right to obviously say that they don't want that to be used. We're fortunate um, at Browning because there's nobody in that position. So all of our students are, they can be photographed, they can be used in marketing. But I do think at, at some schools, particularly schools, I, I find with, um, with uh, middle school students and, and maybe some lower high school students will actually seek out those students, you know, because sometimes a picture that we think is really cute, right, of a seventh grader, they hate it. And you blow that up on a poster, right? And then they're like in the school feeling bad, you know, and they change so much, right? So we, we number one, obviously try to be respectful of that. But number two, I certainly know that in some of my peer schools, people will actually Actually, the communications director will go and see that kid and say like, hey, this is, you know, we want to use this with this. Is that, is that okay with you? You know, and that's just really, that's just purely from a, a perspective of, of what they look like, you know, not as not even anything to do with race or diversity or anything like that. And kids today are used to having like photo approval from their friends before something goes on Instagram. It's like, can I do that? They're very, I can't put a picture of my kids on social media. They're 23 and 19. It's like, they got to have the approval. So I, I think that that is certainly something that people are doing. Well, I, you know, uh, Sam, I didn't mean to kind of throw off your, your original question, but I will add that as a parent, 
I was the one who did not mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, a matter of fact, I, I still hold on to collateral. Same, same. Like yes, that same. My children were, you know, kindergarten. That's an evergreen moment for me. It was like, yes. you know, that's part of the legacy that I leave, uh, that, that our family leaves at our, at our school. Yeah. And look, let's be real. Like if you're a, a black parent in these schools, your child has probably been photographed and been on the website, the magazine that I'm, I'm certainly was that parent. And at my children's school, I was a board chair for a number of years. So I have many nice pieces of collateral from that school where my children were featured. Can we talk about that actually? Um, I'm curious because I, I wonder if as a parent, you know, how I would feel about um, my child being featured, um, I could see it as complimentary on one hand, and I'd be, you know, delighted to see that. On the other hand, I would wonder, you know, sort of the motives behind being featured. I remember um, as an alum visiting my school, and there was a literal photographer following me, looking for opportunities. And I, I was able to see behind that, uh, the, the motivations behind that. So how do, you, how do you juggle that? Yeah, I think, well, look, I think that in communications, for, for me, the philosophy that I always practice is being extremely authentic, right? I want to be, obviously, I want to show any school that I work for um, in the, its very best light, but that also has to be an authentic light. It can be somewhat aspirational. It cannot be completely aspirational. So w- what are the things that people complain about? People, people complain about when you arrange or organize kids in a certain way to show that, quote unquote, you know, United Colors of Benetton moment or something. You should not be moving moving kids really outside of their natural environment or natural grouping, in my opinion, in order to have a shot that is showing your school as more diverse than it is, whatever diversity means to your school. So I don't think that that's, I don't, but I just don't think also that's good practice of photography, right? Like I'm not trying to do a whole lot of stage stuff around the school. You should have a good photographer who is able to capture moments, right? Because it's all about moments. And here, because we talk so much about relationships, it's all about seeing how the kids interact. It's all about seeing how they interact with adults that make it really, really um make the photography special here. I can understand, particularly I think during the Black At, when the Black At movement first really got going, I can completely understand how alums and even some current students felt that it was exploitive to have them, you know, you're featuring them in marketing materials and yet all these other things are going on. I think it's really because all these other things are going on, right? You're exploiting me, but I don't have a seat at the table, right? You're you're exploiting me, or I believe you're exploiting me, and you won't stop that teacher who wants to use the N-word and Huck Finn. Like, that's really what's right. It's not the photo. It's really yes. a meta discussion, right? Mm-hmm. About because again, mm-hmm. to go back to what Gina said, if we focus on that word belonging, if I belong, right? If I'm at a family reunion or I, I'm at something with my friends and I feel like I belong, I don't care if you take my picture. You know, I don't care if like I'm sitting at the table and maybe it's not the, the most flattering picture of me, but you take my picture because you can see on my face, right? I'm at a place where I belong. I'm a place where I'm happy. Yes. It's yes. fine. So when people point out, you know, I don't like that you did that with my picture, it's really about, hey, let's talk about everything else that's going on in the school. Because I let's think- Let's talk about our relationship. Let's talk about- talk about our relationship. Let's talk about our relationship. Yeah. You had produced, um, 
you, I am assuming you're behind the um, video on Browning's homepage. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's sound to it, but I mean, as a silent piece, it's really, really energizing, exciting. Um, and just so much, uh, you know, there's so much going on. Um, what were the forms of diversity that you were trying to execute in that? I mean, look, I think we're trying to show our school as it is, right? It's sort of like 45% of the students identify, or it's probably, no, it's probably 40, 40%, I think, of the students identify as students of color. You know, if they are there, there's a, the, it, it, there isn't sound to it, to answer your question. And it's a, basically a slideshow of sort of photo video of sort of photography. Um, it was, look, we were in every classroom. You know, we were taking pictures. We were at a, a whole bunch of different events, um, taking pictures and, and you get what you get and you put it together with an eye towards making sure that everybody is included, making sure that you have visible diversity always because you have vis visible diversity um, in the school, but we don't really go into it with sort of a brief about let, you know, I mean, and I've seen shops that do that too, right? That go into it with a brief of, do we have an Asian kid? Do we have a black kid? Do we have a whatever? Do we have a gender nonconforming kid? Whatever it is. I, I wouldn't say that we go into it with a brief like that because our brief is our brief is authenticity. So, so we know where we're at. Like as soon as we're, we're looking like we don't have to do that because we know what we're trying to achieve. Yes. You know, uh, Sam mentioned earlier blacks at, I, I want to move there for a moment. When that first emerged, when that movement first emerged, when you saw the black at that first school, do you remember what you were thinking and feeling about that moment? I remember thinking that this is going to be big, right? I remember thinking like, wow, we really have to watch this. And of course, I subsequently ended up writing about it because I was actually just as interested in places that didn't get black added that as did. I thought schools were going to be in no way prepared um, for what they were going to see. I thought for sure the school that my children went to was going to have a huge presence in this space, which it did. Um, and I thought, so what can we do to surface this at our school before it is surfaced to us? Like, so I absolutely, upon seeing it happening at the time, because it, at the heart, you know, I, I do DEI work as well, but at the heart, I'm really, I'm a communicator, I'm a journalism person. That's what I did before I did this role. And you just kind of know, you know, you have a good, uh, you know, I've worked long enough and lived long enough that I have a good, um, I have good instincts for how things are going to develop. And I was like, you know, what people are going to do, I know what people do in a crisis, what people are going to do in a crisis is, is sit there and, and hope that, that it doesn't happen to them, right? Like hope is not a strategy, like it, it is probably going to happen to you. So what can you do at the same time to get in front of it, right? And getting in front of it is not a cynical move, right? Getting in front of it can really is, is a proactive, you're trying to do the right thing move. And I have never been as proud of my institution probably as I have been that the fact that we did do that. And nobody had to force us and nobody had, we did that. We went there. We said, tell us your story proactively before anything could happen here. 
And what else did you do? I, um, we were fortunate to have um, Nat Garcia um, as a guest in the first season. Um, he gave us some color, but what did taking action look like um, for the administrative point of view? Sure, absolutely. So taking action from the administrative point of view very um, early on, and I don't know how many days it was after the, the, we first started seeing the Black Hat stuff, but what we did was we, we crafted a letter that came from John Potty, our head of school. We sent it to all of our alum. And in some ways, this was the most controversial thing that we did because what a lot of schools would do is they would try to pick out the black alum and none of us kept good data, right? Like none of our schools kept really good data going back 60 years, marking what race everybody, because most people were white, like you didn't have to do that. Right. Um, so, but they, so, you know, people would have folks in the alumni office going back and trying, Oh yeah. I remember Gina Parker Collins. She was here, blah, blah, blah. And like picking those names out of their database. We said, no, we said, we're going to talk to everybody. We're going to, and we're going to tell you, we only want to hear from you right now. If you're black, this is a big deal, right? Because the vast majority of people are going to get this letter and be like, no, I'm not. And also like, why, why are you doing it? We knew it was going to raise questions. We try to explain and give folks some of those answers in the letter, but that way we could never be accused of handpicking. We could never be accused of sort of not being thorough because why would you do it any differently than if you had a, God forbid, you had historic sex abuse in your school or whatever. If you had that, you would go to everyone in the alumni body and you would say, if you have any information about crimes that were committed here or children that were harmed here, please let us know. Like, why would you do anything differently just because this is a different matter, just because this is a diversity matter, because children were harmed here, right? That is the bottom line. And we want to know about, and we want to hear your story of that. I want to hear your good stories, but we know they're not all good stories. And so what we did was we did a letter, invited people to a focus group. We had Pollyanna in, they did focus, they did two focus groups. They did focus groups of our you know, black and, and black alum. And then we broadened it to alum of color. Um, and, you know, from that, that's how the Panther mentors got kicked off. Um, you know, those guys came out to the focus group. They shared, they shared some pain. They also shared a lot of joy and they developed as a core group that is, you know, that is still working with our school, that is mentoring our young men that have started a scholarship initiative. There's also bringing them together as a group, two of them are on our board of trustees. So you gotta, you know, you, you can talk the talk, but you really gotta walk the walk at the end of the day. And I, I'm, I'm really proud of what we did there. And in terms of communication, I mean, obviously they were on the cover of our magazine. They're on the cover of a digital magazine. They have been, you know, front and center at whether it's alumni events or admission events. And we are just, we're unbelievably grateful to them. And they are really the pinnacle and the embodiment of sort of a Browning gentleman. You've done a great job, you and your team of uh, chronicling that, the Panther mentors and their emergence. And um, it was really great to hear that you work with Pollyanna. We, we love Casper and them. Um, you did a great job. I mean, that cover with Nat on the cover. Yeah. Hello. I yeah. mean, no. Great cover. That was a great shoot. That was a. Great that was shoot. a great shoot, and it and it also coincided with the fact that he was working on the vaccine. So it just right, right. <laughs> which we never would have known. Right. Okay. Yeah. Also, like if no. we had never been in touch with them, we never would have known that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, proud mama moment for that for sure. Um, 
You say we a lot. Could you describe, and this was a crisis, essentially, that you were addressing. Absolutely. So who were the players uh, involved in this equity crisis at Browning? Who was sure. leading? Sure. Um, John Body, our head of school. Absolutely. Um, you know, Lauren Stewart, who at the time was our EDI director. Now we have a new EDI director, Naledi Samela. Um, but it, and it was essentially so it was essentially kind of the three of us, but that were the initial. And then as we expanded to have our first meeting with these gentlemen, which then occurred after the focus groups happened, we broadened that to be both some folks from from admission. Janet was there. I, um, folks from the division head level, all three of the division heads were there. Um, you know, advancement has become increasingly involved, obviously, because they're doing uh, scholarship work. Um, so it's really been something that has touched all of basically all the aspects of the school. We're a small school. We're only 400 kids. Um, but absolutely from the very top and the board got involved very early. I mean, this was, this all happened, you know, whatever, a year and a half ago. And two of the members of the Panther Mentors are on the board of trustees. I mean, I can tell you from being on another board of trustees, you don't get on boards of trustees at these independent schools like that, you know, very quickly. So yeah. it's, it's really everything moved really well. You know what I like about that list? Um, this just going to take a step back. We had a um, guest host over the summer. Uh, it was a student that had just graduated and all of the work she had put into implementing, um, you know, belonging, uh, diversity and inclusion at her school. And I think there's a lot of students that have had to take on that load at these mm -hmm. institutions, almost like a job. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm hearing is the adults are taking ownership. Absolutely. Um, and while Absolutely. empowering students like mm -hmm. Nat, forgot to say Nat Garcia is the uh, board member, former alum, um, but just the idea that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a, a minor taking on, you know, these like historical institutions and, and the hard work of transforming them. Right. We should hold ourselves right accountable. Right. And all I mean, we know this. This goes across, you know, beyond diversity to all kinds of situations in which someone may have been victimized, right? It's just not the victim's job, right, to hold me accountable. I should be trying to hold myself accountable as a mission, you know, as a mission forward institution, as an institution that believes in honesty and dignity, you know, sort of how could we not, right? Um, and uh, look, I I can't tell you that we would have been black at it. Like, I don't know if anybody would have started, you know, an Instagram page. Um, there you know, wasn't okay. one? There was not one. There okay. was never one. Um, and, and I can't tell you that our, that our students would have gotten up in, up in arms. I just know that they didn't. I know that we did the right thing really early. And I think I like to think that that counts, you know, and I certainly had, I mean, I had many conversations and obviously I had some conversations with these folk off to the side, you know, I'm, we, we share a race, we share a lot of other things in common. And I can tell you that, you know, they feel quite protective of Browning. And I think for all of the right reasons, right? When somebody is, you know, really trying to do the right thing, even if they didn't always do the right thing, you give them a chance, right? And you partner. Jan, you mentioned um, a couple of things here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and encapsulate 
all of it um, ultimately getting to the gender piece because you do lead communications at a single sex school. Mm -hmm. So the first is the building of trust, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Clearly, and I want to give it to Browning, they clearly have built some trust even with their most marginalized uh, members of the community if in fact the Black Sat account never came about. But then I also think about the vulnerability piece too. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with gender, mm-hmm. right? Um, not to mention, and even before we, we get to that gender piece, I was part of a panel, uh, an admission panel this week past that talked about the Blacks at movement. And Mm -hmm. one of my co-panelists wondered and worried about these accounts kind of throwing schools under the bus, Mm -hmm. right? And that airing of dirty laundry. And you don't do that. There's there's this should be this protective nature. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hear what she had to say. I hear her. At the same time, I know that our schools are powerful enough and grown up enough to be able to take the critique because critique is a form of love, mm-hmm. right? So I'm wondering back to the to the gender piece. I'm wondering if Black Sat accounts were anonymous, so I don't know um, if it what gender was behind most of the accounts. But do you think that Browning may have gotten through because it is an all boys school? And then after you answer that, just talk a little bit about leading communications at a single sex school? Sure, sure. No, I think, um, I think absolutely, you are correct that I think that fewer boys schools just kind of broadly, so not even Browning, although several of them had black ad accounts, didn't those accounts didn't have nearly the traction of what they had at girls schools, right? Um, And then even less what they had at co-ed schools. Like I think it's in some ways, the girls schools were the ones that really had the accounts that were just going for months and, and, you know, multiple posts every single day. So I, which I, again, think is a very much a function of girls school, right? Of just really sort of, passionately involved um, students that are that are uh, you know aggressive and assertive and political and, and all of the things that right that we want our girls to be when they go to girls schools I think in single gender schools yeah you may you you get it if nothing else I don't know that it's a vulnerability piece you get a level of you, you get a piece that it could be read as sort of apathetic could be read which is not necessarily to say that it is but that it could be, um, could be read a little bit as we, we can handle it ourselves or, you know, so that's where the vulnerability piece comes in, right? That, that didn't get to me. I'm not as sensitive about X, but that having been said, I do think that, you know, parent, because parents got involved in these, um, you know, in, in these sites as well. And, you know, most people here have, a, you know, have a mom and a dad, right? So it's like, so there certainly are many schools where, you know, moms, dads, whomever were on those pages as well. So I do think that there's, there's a part that is about the students themselves. And then there's just a part, and, I, and I, it, it, it could be possible that, people who send their children to boys schools are thinking that they're getting more of a um, traditional environment. And so then some of that exclusivity or some of it, some of this is a little bit more baked in 
so so that when they've chosen, you know, so so one of the reasons that I think that that some of the things that happened at you know a place like Dalton or a place like Spence, just to name a couple of places, is because the um the the stated sort of brand vary or or was so far off the mark of what people's experiences were. Right when you you know coming to to Browning, you know that you're coming to Browning. You know you're coming to the Upper East Side. You know it's coat and tie. You know that it's it, we're, we're not a traditional um, pedagogical environment, but you but you might think so from from looking at us right so you again there's some things that you have just baked in right um that that you wouldn't have at a spencer dalton so it's like wait what people want to read huck finn and say what at this school like that is a very and that's very hard so it's a it's the mismanaged expectations in in some ways and i don't think that these schools actually knew they were mismanaging expectations because they thought that what was going on in the minds of, I think, some of their students is very different than what was. And, and probably they thought some of the things that were going on in their classrooms were it's very different than actually what was. You are um, blowing my mind, Jan. I, you know what? So I, I'm saying the same thing, Sam, because every... And I'm going to let you go next, Sam. And then I got I have I have another question. Go because Jan, you are um, pulling out more right and and leading communications i you're doing a great job let's just say that <laughs> i'll come back i'm gonna i'm gonna write down what i want to ask go ahead sam yeah i'm just thinking about these layers that you're uncovering um for blacks at and i did not think about the gender component just zooming in on browning i didn't think about i i think of it as you know i, I think about single it's single sex nature uh, as an afterthought as uh, it pertains to this conversation with communications but yes the blacks at um when thinking about you know a lot of the stories that arise there was an almost uh massage noir or an almost uh there, there was a, a gender element to a lot of it as it pertained to appearance, um, as it appeared to, as it pertained to, you know, desirability and everything. But my point being is, uh, do you think that there also might have been, um, it, it also might be reflective of the level of activism or, or advocacy among Browning students that they wouldn't participate in a Black Zat? Yeah, I don't, you know, look, I think our kids are very, um, you know, active. Uh, certainly, it's like, you know, it'd be interesting to see how the pandemic has changed all of this. I think our kids really do kind of care about issues. I mean, we've got, you know, obviously all the affinity groups, and we also have like, a you know, a kind of an umbrella group that's the umbrella group of all the affinity groups. And I think that they are, you know, I think they're interested, and I think that they're active. I think that at places that are that are co-ed, though, to your point, um, having had both, you know, both of my children go through Dalton and one's a boy and one's a girl, I can tell you, there are probably more women of color than there were men of color in those organizations. I'm not talking about pure numbers, right? Uh, so that when it came time to go to an affinity space, like, I don't think that my son was as eager, you know, I don't think he probably went as much as, as my daughter did. And they're four years apart and she's four years older. Um, there's also, interestingly, several years ago, I was at um, POCC, I think it was in, when it was in Anaheim. And we did, I did the Saturday portion with, where it gets the kids and the adults together. And I was there with a woman who was from North Carolina school. I think it was Ravenscroft or something like that. And I, and our whole group was, was girls. This whole group of, of young people that had, had come to SDLC were, that we ended up speaking with were all girls. And they, I think every one of them was crying 
by the end of this, you know, and this was a turn and talk. This is a 20 minute thing. This is, we were not rapping for hours and hours and hours. And I afterwards asked the other adult that was there with me. And she said, well, you know, here's the thing, which I had not thought about, even in context of my own children, the boys have so many more ways in, right? It's like they're, they're going to get a date for the prom, right? No matter what race that girl is, they are, they're often um, in athletics, you know, and not recruited athletes. They're just often in athletics. They just join the team, right? Um, They are doing their, 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 Social relationships may have less of a component of, you know, kind of we all look alike or we all live here. We all wear these kind of clothes. Like, I don't know, my son wears jeans from the Gap and it's totally fine. Like there's just so the relationships are different. Right. And the desire for belonging, too, is very different. Right. It's like girl comes in. It's like, you know, I want to have a lot of friends. I want to, you know, you you guys like, what do you mean? Everybody's not going to be nice to me, you know, and guys are just sort of like they're bonding over different things. Right. They're so that's that's part of it. Um, I think hearing, you know, the Panther mentors speak to even their relationships with faculty here, right? And how deep and meaningful, like it that really blew my mind that people that were like, you know, my age could talk about, you know, the French teacher that's been dead for you know 20 years or something like that. Um, and and the kind of impact that that made on them. So it was interesting, some of those those relationships, which were very different, but I think of a lot of girls and very much involved in kind of peer-to-peer sort of relationships. But yeah, I mean, neither of like my kids are in, in any particular way activists about things, but if it was going to be, if it was going to be somebody, it was going to be my daughter and not my son. Yeah, well, that, that, um, that is my daughter, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there you go. project was uh, compiling stories of Black girls um, and finding solidarity in similar experiences and articulating that in her senior project, which is a published book called Afro, shameless plug, Aphrodite, A-F-R-O. That's a great name. A-F-R-O. Okay. I I knew it. I knew it before you said it. Okay, good, 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 good. A Black Girl's Guide to PWIs. And it's a book of poetry and art. And um, the similarities are are astounding. And for my son, he is, um, I don't want to say he's ambivalent because he can't be living in my household. However, he just has another experience. And they both, it's interesting because they both admire each other's uh, successful experiences. My daughter, you know, like academic rock star and my son, a social rock star. (laughs) Um, And to that point, I do want to go ahead with a little bit of time that we have left. And thank you so much for your generosity in time and sharing such really great information, because I think if we understand, particularly as parent stakeholders, how a school articulates, uh, communicates, and activates a a sense of belonging, we can just be better partners Mm -hmm. in our school community. So when we think about communicating towards the recruitment end of your institution, Mm -hmm. right, would you say that communications since Black at Movement for sure has evolved to say, this is who we are. We are, our mission is aligned 
with DEIB. So we want you to know that now. I understand you you, you see Browning as a particular brand, um, maybe not pedagogically uh, um, conservative, but, you know, suit and tie. Mm-hmm. Uh have you changed how you communicate? Essentially what I want to know is, have you changed how you communicate who you are and where you're going as a school community so that a sense of belonging is felt by everyone? Yeah, well, I think one very key way that um, that, that we have changed how we communicate, and I'm, I'm really pl- proud of this, and this is really coming from our in- admission and enrollment team, is that we ask a question about equity and inclusion on the, you know, when, when the parents, right, are going through the interview process. I think that that speaks volumes, right? Um, because what we don't want to have happen is that people have a false impression because we are a Coton High School, because we're on East 62nd Street, that this is safe harbor from the quote unquote woke schools that you might see downtown or up on the hill or whatever, because people will make assumptions, right? People will make assumptions. But when you get in a room and cross from the admissions officer and they're going to say, you know, like kind of what conversations have you had in your family about this? How do you see yourself adding to this here, you know, with the equity inclusion here. Um, that's important. And I and I would say it doesn't always take people by surprise, or I wouldn't even say it takes most people by surprise, but that's a stake in the ground for us. That's important. And you know, that didn't that started a couple of years ago. That was important for us to know that about you and for you to understand that's important to us. So I think that beyond, right, like I'm showing you a picture on a website, pull down my DEIB page. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a walk in the walk, right? Because, because we actually want to know, like, we want to know what kind of, we're asking the question because we want to know who you are. And what about the style guide or, you know, any kind of language changes that have taken place? I mean, we look what we are very, very conscious. And I think any place, you know, one of the, the, the drums that I always bang is that there's not enough, there's not enough black folks, there's not enough people of color, period, that do the work that I do in school. So it is very unusual. I'm not the only one, but I'm, I could probably count them on one hand of New York City schools where communications is run by a person of color. And then do you even know them all. <laughs> Yeah. And even in the department, there might not be anybody. So, so just from that, there's all kinds of ways that we look at language. We look at photography, we look at social media that that's different, right. From how other people do it just because of my identity. But we also look at things like our, you know, we we're very close followers of, of, of conscious style guide, which puts out some great materials and, you know, has a great website and, and, and emails about like, Hey, have you looked at your language around disability? Have you looked at your language around gender? You know, like you, you're saying single sex, single sex, single sex, we sing single gender, you know, it's like really, that's, that's really the specific term. It's interesting when, when people are talking, folks are uh, particularly among the girls schools now are having conversations about, um, should they be calling themselves historically girls schools, right? Because of where, where does the transgender piece now fit in? We look at, we are a boys, we always say that we are a boys school by, by choice, not chance. And we are absolutely that. We are always looking at these conversations though. You know, this is, we're always looking at, you know, there is a pronoun is not going to like stop traffic here. You know, it, it's, it's, we, we are, we are, conscious and aware. I mean, and I think that that's really it. It's really about the disposition. So it's really not about so much how you change in the moment, but are how open to change you are whenever 
change meets you, right? Or whenever you feel like you're about to meet a moment. So the reason everything could happen with the Panther mentors is, is we were open to being able to react, right? Versus what we're going to do is shut down and just hope nobody comes for us. And I, I, I think it's easy for schools to come from the latter position because it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be open to everybody. You're going to say you want people to belong, but it's hard to create belonging. You know, you got to work at it. I want to intentionally begin to wrap up with, um, is there anything that you want stakeholders in the independent school community to know that you bring through, through your lens? I think, what do you think folks are missing? What do you think that they need to know as we, you know, move into this school year at a rapid pace, right? And we're always looking for outcomes. We're doing all of this work. We're looking for outcomes. What can you, now I'm not even gonna, now I've created the question. <laughs> Instead of you giving me the, the what you think we should know, um, but please add to it. Um, what can we do, all stakeholders, to make sure that the outcomes of our strategic plans, of our style guide, of, of whatever it is that we're doing to create belonging, what should outcomes look like? I think for, for stakeholders, I think all of us can be accountable in this. We've Many of us have done really good jobs in terms of the numbers and in terms of making sure that student population more accurately reflects what the population of New York City might look like. What about the administrators? What about the faculty? You know, what is your school doing to not only recruit, but retain faculty of color, right? It's, I always say that you change the conversation when you change who's around the table. It is the quickest, fastest, most effective way, right? If you you don't want to be blindsided by the fact that, you know, people think your place is racist. It's like get more people around the table that are going to be able to say to the head of school, this policy is wrong. It needs to change. Or let me tell you about my experience when I was in prep for prep or whatever it is. We have those voices. You know, we have huge cadres of folks that can come work in these schools and that are fabulous teachers and PS had the experience of being an independent school child themselves. Utilize those people, make your school attractive for those people to come work there, you know? And I think that that would really, because I think that's a place where independent schools really struggle for a lot. Okay. Of so it's really about, because, you know, we, we continually ask, you know, in the outcomes of, you know, having more faculty of color, what is the problem? Mm -hmm. I mean, I yes, there are still probably more white female teachers out here, public, private, hence the book, you know, the guide for white women who teach black boys. <laughs> but what is the challenge? Because clearly there is a challenge. Is it all the school, all, all on the school, not making it attractive enough, not communicating that this is a place where you can belong and quite frankly, all of our children benefit Mm -hmm. when they have teachers of color? Or do you think it's that um, teachers, faculty of color. And are, administrators. And administrators, yeah. like, are, are, do they just like, do they just not want independent schools? What What's the problem? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, people used to say the latter, what you just said, that, that you, in particular, referencing black folks, right, that like, we wanted to go work in, in, you know, work in public schools to help 
other black folks. I think that the reality is now there's there's so many of us that have that have grown up in this way of life that I don't necessarily think that that's true at all. Like so there's a there is a bit of a um there could be a bit of a pipeline problem, but sometimes that exists also too because of the kinds of backgrounds that people want to require in their schools, right? If you look, you, you know, we we still have some schools, we are not one, but we still have some schools who might say, ah, you know, if I'm deciding between a person who worked at an independent school with a so-so reputation and a person that worked at a charter school with an excellent reputation, I'm going to take the independent school person because I they know what we're like, you know? And so there's some things that are not um, indicative of quality, uh, but that we still believe are important, right? Like we, we, we're going to love a person that went to a small liberal arts college in New England. Like we, that is, that is our zone for, you know, teachers and in, in independent school. Um, so sometimes we simply need to broaden, right? I, you know, my own personal story is that I was a parent in these schools, but I did not, you know, there's still people doing my job that were English teachers. I mean, let's face it. There certainly are people doing my job that, you know, have more advanced, you know, have advanced degrees and I do not. So in some ways you, they broke the job. My first employer broke the job description to give me a chance. Right. And we all see other people around our, you know, in our communities that don't seem to have necessarily had every checkbox on some of the job descriptions. And that needs to happen more for, and for everybody. And did not lower the standards clearly well, when they were breaking the job description because you of course. have done a phenomenal job in communicating the soul of a school, where it's been, where it wants to go. So Right, exactly. And I think that that's lucky I, think to have that, you. I think that is invariably true. I mean, I have been on hiring committees, you know, every year since I've worked in independent schools. That's invariably true that just because you're because because frankly, you're always the schools, employers, whatever, are always ignoring some qualification because Gina recommended them or because I met him in an alumni event. Like that's always happening. So, you know, the, the reason it doesn't happen as much for us is because we're not like of that critical mass. Like we're not in those rooms as much as all the other people that are not people of color are in those rooms. But there's tons of us out there. We're really good. We move around as everybody does. Three, four, five years, we're moving from one job to another. Um, and, it, and it shouldn't have to be about like, just give us a chance because you can, you can see we produced wherever we were before, right? So it's like, go after us. Like also too, when you, when you got a job opening, go after us. You know where we are. Yay. Well, go Jan. Uh, we're huge fans um, of you, of the Browning well, Thank you. School. I'm huge fans of Rise and, and, and everything that y'all have done. And I, I remember Gina from way, 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 way back. Yeah. When, yeah. Oh yeah. How about that? <laughs> and we still look good. You know, we, 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 may show, we may show some excerpts of this uh, podcast, but, you know, for those of you who can't see it, you can hear it in our yeah. voice. <laughs> yeah, Jim said she had a 220 something year old. And I'm glad that this isn't like a video thing because oh. a look of shock. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just so, so blown away. Another example. I mean, we've had uh, Gina and I have had so many guests that are mothers mm -hmm. um, that are uh, either, you know, there's, a, they are doing this, uh, they could do this for no money, it is that important to them. Mm -hmm. We've had so many guests like that. Um, and so, you know, you are just one of, you know, many uh, parents in the independent school space 
um, really just uh, taking on this burden and just trying to make the experience better for the next generation and the generation after that. Um, and so I'm really glad that listeners are getting this aspect, which is so important because it's almost the first impression um, that you get of a school that plants the seed, that tells you, hey, maybe I could belong here the, through the visuals, through the copy that you produce. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. We know it. And we take that we take that responsibility really seriously. I want to show what the school is like. I think the school is an excellent choice for for families of of color. Yes. So I just want to congratulate you. I'm so excited for the October 17th event, Gina. Yes. Um, So Jan will be kicking off with our keynote discussion for the Rise Fall Boutique Recruitment event, uh, a really great opportunity to have more voice and visibility families. So please register if you're thinking about or and or are very intentional about this admission season. We are not only going to be inspired and empowered um, by what belonging can look like and how we can take ownership of that with Jan, we are also going to um, create opportunities for families to be in front of decision makers, perhaps for the second or third time, let me tell you, it's a very subjective, selective, and um, it's a a tough process. So you just want to have voice and visibility. We're creating some intimate, intentional FaceTime. So register. And as soon as you register, you will receive an invitation to participate in our newly formatted Invitational School Fair for more FaceTime with decision makers. So I just want to thank you, uh, Jan, for for doing that with us, for being on the podcast today. Uh, you know, before you know it, we'll be looping you back in again. So I hope you afford us that thank opportunity. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all of the work that you do in the industry. You are well known. You are making things happen. You're behind the scenes. Um, and, and we want folks to know about that. So thanks for sharing how you impact our independent schools. And with that, I'm going to say thanks for articulating with us. So we enjoyed our time with Jan so much I, and, and she looked great. So we're going to have to pull out an excerpt, um, uh, a video <laughs> yeah. excerpt of our podcast. She, had, she has a lot of gems. The Jan has a lot of gems um, in sharing the inner workings of an independent school. She enlightened what belonging means. It's a buzzword that we're all holding onto. We're grabbing onto it. So she was an awesome guest and we cannot wait to have her speak to us about what schools are doing to uh, communicate and activate belonging. And I also want to dig into what families can do around that. We don't have to wait for a school to to give us that sense of belonging. Belonging is a verb and we can take that on, particularly when we know our cultural capital. And those are really the keys to success. So that's our kickoff discussion, our keynote discussion with Jan Abernathy. So we look forward to folks joining us on the 17th to kick off our 12th Rise Fall Boutique Recruitment event. I cannot wait, Gina. I are you, you going to come? You're going to come? 100%. Yes. Okay. Well, I, need, I need to see both you and Jan. <laughs> that, that is gold. So two in the books. Follow Articulating on Instagram at Artic period Ulating. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.